there, and welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the 1% Better Podcast. It's been one week since I've launched, and at this point, I've noticed over 1,000 listens to the five shows on SoundCloud. Probably more through iTunes, but can't get the statistics on that. So I'd just like to say thank you massively for tuning in and sharing it with your friends. And hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing so far. It's been interesting looking at the statistics on SoundCloud. Listeners tuning in from the US, Canada, Azerbaijan, Australia, even Hawaii. That is really cool. I'd really love to hear from the people that are listening in Hawaii, in Honolulu, Get your feedback. I wonder what you make of the show so far. So if you are listening to this episode, feel free to drop me a note through the website, the feedback page, Twitter, Facebook. So that's great. Thank you again. In this episode, I have a conversation with John Dennehy. So John is a serial entrepreneur. Over the last 20 years, he's set up many businesses. In 1997, he set up Zartis.com and he talks in detail about the successes around that the rise of that company over nine months, the challenges it faced afterwards with the dot-com bubble bursting. He talks about his early years becoming a journalist and his early career in publishing, traveling around Australia, traveling around Europe. A lot of good, interesting stories along the way. I looked to extract learnings and insights from John based on his experiences. And I'm sure as you listen, you'll hear those and take something from them. Towards the end, we get into his habits, how he's productive, work-life balance, and certainly other interesting topics that you will enjoy. So to keep it brief, I will leave it there. Please enjoy the conversation between John Dennehy and myself, which was recorded in February. Hi, folks. I'm here today with John Dennehy of Zartus fame for another episode of the 1% Better podcast. So, John, thank you very much for agreeing to do the show. Thank you, Al. I think we'll kick into it because obviously time is precious for, for everybody. So, John, it'd be great to start off a bit of background about yourself, where you, where you come from, maybe what your aspirations were as a, as a young guy. Still a young guy, obviously, but a younger guy. Uh, so, I was born in Cape Town, came to Cork when I was about two and a half. I uh, went to school in Bishopstown, then into Prez in Cork City Centre. And then left there at 17, went to DCU, studied communications for three years. Mm-hmm. And then went back to South Africa to do postgrad, uh, stayed there for a couple of years and then back to Ireland again. Okay. Interesting. I didn't know you did communications. I didn't maybe do my research, but that was what I actually did out of college first. I only lasted six months though at the time. I I think I was 17 and I was in Dublin for the first time and wasn't, wasn't, I just went a bit off the rails, I think. Yeah. I think you just got wise and you realized like, there were better things ahead for you. So that was a three year course at the time yeah. then as well, was it? Yeah. That, that was with the radio, photography, yeah, video in it. The BA in uh, communications in DCU. So I think it was, it was one of the more difficult courses to get into and one mm. of the easiest ones to get out of, which yeah. suited me perfectly. Right. Because uh, one of the things for me was that I think there was only, Maybe eight to ten formal hours a week lectures at the time. That's it. And I think yeah. that threw me because I just had too much time in my hands. I didn't know what the hell to do with it. And I was an introvert still. I would consider myself an introvert. Um, a lot of extroverts on the course. And I felt intimidated by the whole experience. So I kind of jumped ship and went down the IT route. But yeah. I this is about you yeah. know about no, me. I... So, so just even maybe step back. When you were growing up in Cork, did you have a clear vision of what you wanted to do with 
in those early years? Was communications or that area something you always wanted to get into? Yeah, I think when I was in my teens, uh, I was convinced I'd be a journalist and particularly a photojournalist or a war journalist was what the, the teenage aspiration uh, was. Then I did communications because I saw the changes in terms of what was happening with you know the rise of the information society. Actually, I remember reading Alvin Toffler, The Third Wave, uh, on, on a beach on holidays when I was about 16 and thinking, this is this is the big change of our lifetime. Right. Um, so communications was a good course uh, for me because I was interested in that area and I was also interested in journalism. Uh, and I kind of knew more about what I didn't want to do. So I knew I didn't want to do law or commerce or something like that so hmm. uh, maybe it was a process of deduction and communication was all that was actually left process of elimination um, and when you were growing up did you have major influences at that time that were I suppose you were looking up to that made you go down that route or was there anything that sticks out in, from an influence not really I don't, I don't think I actually uh, had ever met a journalist it just seemed like this romantic notion um, I was interested in debating, I was interested in politics, uh, I was interested in, you know, world affairs uh, in my teens, I guess. So I guess, yeah, they were, they were probably, they were, they were influencers, I guess, in that, in that, in that, in those areas. Mm. And how did you find the, the move from Cork to Dublin, going to DCU? Was it a, a big change? Uh, I moved into Diggs with uh, an elderly lady in Griffith Avenue, okay. up near Juncandra. Uh, and I remember the first uh, Iran, or the first war in Iraq broke out. Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, the Americans started bombing Iraq. And the lady I was living with, her daughter was in uh, in Dubai, I think. Mm. So she left and I was left with her husband, who was actually very sick. Mm. So I'd gone there to digs, but I ended up, I think, uh, helping the elderly gentleman in the house wow. uh, because she, she had to leave. Um, so that was, yeah, it was interesting. And Dublin's, you know, going to college in Dublin was a very different experience to growing up with a large family in Cork. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for sure it was different. I mean, the freedom you have, you know, you, you, you become your master of your own time and your own, your own destiny to a large degree when you, mm-hmm. when you leave home. And I think leaving home at 18, I certainly enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a great time. Cool. And when you were up there to complement your, your study and your lifestyle, was there any, you know, was there a first job you might've taken on or was there anything that you would have done to um, keep, I, your, keep yourself sufficiently sustained? Yeah. Well, we, I was given money at the start of the year for the year by my dad. The budget for the year. And that was it. It was like, there's your money. Uh, right, so right. obviously it was spent in the first six weeks. Yeah. Uh, so I did have to work after that. Um, my girlfriend was in Cork studying in UCC at the time. So uh, our family business is in, in, in trucks. Uh, so I got a job driving trucks from okay. Dublin to Cork. So I'd cycle to uh, Harris's truck garage up by the airport in Dublin every mm. Friday. I'd collect a truck and I'd tie my bike onto the back of the truck, onto the, the chassis, and drive it back down to Cork. It was another way of getting home. Really. It was great. You it was perfect. I got home, I got paid. It was, yeah, it was great. So was university like a, this kind of enlightening experience for you? Was it a life-changing journey that some people say that they get out of university? Yeah, it was enlightening and it was life-changing. And most of the enlightenment probably happened in the college canteen or the bar. Yeah. Um, the hours are very low, like similar to yourself we did about eight hours per week mm. uh, and a lot of the study was project based so we could just basically go off and do whatever project we wanted mm. um so it was interesting uh, very you know the course is very left-wing um most of the, the lecturers are very left-wing mm. um i probably didn't fit in perfectly uh, <laughs> to right. all categories there 
Um, but I did enjoy it. And probably the most useful thing I learned there was how to type 50 words per minute. Absolute. That's where I learned how to touch type. In the six months that I was there, they gave us a, there was a one hour, I don't know, one hour a day or a week touch typing yeah. course. That was the one thing I took out of it when I started in, in, in UCG after that. People were astonished that I could look at the screen and type and it was like, did you meet any interesting friends or people on the course that you're still friends with? Like, cause yeah. I know when I was in it again, there was a lot of interesting characters mm. in the course. Um, mm. I think some of them have went on to have careers in media and writing books and stuff like that. Did you have any? Yeah, I, mean, I had a core group of friends in Cork that I was on, friends with from school. Um, so I'd see them a lot at the weekends because it was, you know, most weekends I'd probably come back down to Cork. Uh, and for summers I went away with friends from Cork generally. So, you know, I guess I deepened friendships with the existing friends that I had from that. But I met a lot of new friends in Dublin in college. I met some great people there, some some really interesting people and uh, I'm good friends with, with many of them still today. Okay, cool. So that's college life done. Coming out of college with your degree ready to take on the world, what was what was next? So my girlfriend went to, Siobhan, I uh, went to Edinburgh University for a year. So when I finished in DCU, um, I went to Scotland with her. I went to Edinburgh mm-hmm. and I got my first job working for uh, Sky TV in oh. the evenings. So oh. I worked for small company called uh, Pickerty TV during the day and I basically was working as a runner and fixing uh, video cameras and making sure the bulbs were working in the, the lights mm. and then in the evenings I worked for Sky TV answering telephones uh, telling people that their their bill was overdue and we're right. going to cut them off you know, that's um, yeah, yeah so that that was my first job after college our first two jobs after college I think Sky TV won't be rehiring me again. You know, I, the, working in the call center right. didn't, didn't suit me. And were they recording but, conversations at that time? You know, so that's when you this call may be recorded for yeah. So you had headphone on and you couldn't answer the call. You would just hear a beep, and then two seconds later the call would come in. Okay. And you couldn't actually hang up either. So if there was a customer shouting at you, God. there was no way to actually hang up. So you would kind of try and talk them down. And if you got up off your seat and went to the toilet, you had to key in one code. And if you got up off your seat and you went, you know, for a break, you had to key in another code. Everything was tracked the whole time. Right. Um, so it was like kind of, you know, people complain about cruelty to animals and that, you know, we were, we were the, the factory hens mm. of the, the information age. Right. Um, so that's, that would look, it, you know, it was, I earned good money from it, relatively good money, you know, uh, mm. it was a job. It's not something I'd like to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and I don't think that's the company I'd, I'd, I'd like to work for. Right. So then in January, uh, like four months later, I had applied to study journalism in South Africa and I got that course. Mm-hmm. So then I left Edinburgh and went to South Africa for a year in right. uh, January 1994. Okay. And that was a year in South Africa. It was a year of the elections in April 94. April 22nd was the election day when South Africa had its first democratic election. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough to be in South Africa when that was happening uh, and that was an amazing experience yeah it was absolutely amazing like to see long queues of people through townships waiting to cast their first vote mm. uh, was really amazing I mean I'm really grateful and feel very lucky that I got to see that mm. what what kind of things stick with you from that or was there any major learnings or takeaways during during that year I suppose when you were there yeah I mean that for me was a huge eye-opener I mean we live in a world where there's huge extremes between wealth and poverty but usually we're separated geographically from them mm-hmm. you know you've some you've divisions in Ireland of course right but it's not as pronounced as it is 
in somewhere like South Africa. I mean, in South Africa, you've, you've extremely wealthy people and you've, mm. you know, you've townships where there's no running water. The electricity is run off a car battery mm. and you could have 12 people crammed into sleep in one room. And that's neck, you know, that's within a kilometer of, you know, a massive house. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's the extremes in, in, in wealth and poverty in South Africa are very, very apparent and it's very in your face. And that's, that's something that people find quite shocking and mm. hard to get to deal with. Because you live in Ireland doesn't mean that that poverty and those extremes don't exist anymore. Mm. You know, but when you're there and, and you're, you're confronted with it and it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, you know, harder to deal with. And it's, it's also a big wake up call, right? That this is reality. This is the world you live in. Mm. Um, was it, did you feel safe over there? Was there a tension? Uh, we had a great time. I mean, I was in Grahamstown in the southeast of the country, which is kind of a rural area. You know, the, the town I was in is a university town. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of good schools. Um, and there's a large township really just outside the town. Um, we were broken into a couple of times. You know, there was a guy climbing in the window one night with a knife. And uh, another day, uh, we were broken into and everything was was stolen. Like everything, my shoes, <laughs> everything. You weren't wearing them at the time ago. No, no. Uh, but that's the way it is. In, yeah. You know, like I was never physically uh assaulted over there i didn't feel any less safe physically than i would in in cork Mm. um i moved to johannesburg after that and the crime rates in johannesburg are higher and johannesburg is a little bit more edgy um and you you certainly see you know like i'd never seen somebody shot until i was over there um so yeah, it's definitely, it's a different world. Mm. I mean, South Africa is an amazing, amazing, beautiful country, yeah. but there is a high crime rate over there. Okay. I mean, you always hear of, you know, somebody being robbed or, you know, some kind of violent crime. Like it's, it just becomes uh, part of the day, I guess. It, yeah. You, you just, just get used to it. it. Yeah. You just, that's it. That's what goes on, you know? Mm. So you did a year in journalism and yeah. at that stage, ready to become a journalist, I guess, was it? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Johannesburg and I got my first job as assistant editor of a business and technology magazine called Intelligence. Okay. And that was in, obviously, 1995. Um, and you had a, you know, a grow for technology as well? Yeah, yeah. You always had a passion for Yeah, that. like the, you know, the web browsers came out really around 94 and I was in the Computer User Society Netscape in college. Stuff like yeah, yeah. Um, the first Mozilla, I think it was. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it ran on X Windows, so you had to learn a little bit of Unix to launch a browser. Mm. Um, and that was, you know, there was no images in, in a web page. It was like mm. text only. Yeah. Uh, also, my girlfriend was at home and in, she'd gone back to UC. No, she was in Edinburgh still. Right. And she had email and I had email and we couldn't afford to phone each other. Yeah. And a postcard took a week to, yeah, yeah. to get there or a letter would take a week. So, yeah, so email yeah. was great. And also, actually, my granny was in Cork and she had got the internet. My dad set her up with mm. with a modem. Mm. And in, this is in 94, like this is pretty early. Uh, and she got Amazing. IRC installed, Internet Relay Chat. Oh, yeah. So occasionally we could chat to her as well over, over the internet, yeah. which was brilliant. Mm. It totally breaks down the yeah, barriers. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the internet was like uh, the early web browser and Gopher and, you know, all these kind of mm. early internet tools were, uh, started becoming popular in 94. Yeah. And I had access to them because it was in the university and because it was far away, it made sense to use them to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to work in Johannesburg, mm-hmm. the magazine I worked with was covering the information age or the growth of yeah. tech and business. But not from a technology point of view, more from a business and 
kind of societal point of view. Right. Um, so we we got to meet some really interesting people that year because South Africa had just opened up. Uh, you know, it was a post-apartheid South Africa and mm-hmm. it was okay to do business in South Africa. So like when I was there, you know, Steve Ballmer came over and, mm-hmm. you know, gave a talk to us and we met a lot of, there was a lot of really interesting people came over. Yeah. Scott McNeely from Sun Microsystems came over mm-hmm. and Sun Microsystems were the, like the Sun Indie was like the internet box. Like that's the yeah. box you had if you wanted to right. to run a website. Yeah. So we got to meet him and like I was 23 meeting guys like this was well, was amazing. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But he, we ended up getting a computer. I think we got an Indie box from Sun uh, and the magazine I was working with, we, we were going to then put the magazine online. So mm. we started putting parts of the magazine online. Okay. Uh, and that was for me a really interesting way to learn about yeah. electronic publishing. And, yeah. you know, I was sold on the idea that this was the way forward. Yeah. Um, so I started writing more and more about the internet and started dabbling in, you know, creating web pages and learning HTML, doing that mm. kind of stuff. Uh, and then I took, I left Johannesburg and I took four four or five months to travel up through Africa and come home and uh, got a job then in Dublin with a division of Smurfits. It was called Mm. Smurfit Electronic Publishing. There was a guy, Marcus McCarthy, who was running the division. Uh, He was in school with my older brother. Uh, So I met him, talked to him about what I was doing, uh, started working with them. It was a small group of us, three or four of us, Mm. basically built an electronic publishing division for Smurfit. Uh, We were putting, you know, some of the magazine content online, like they had Cara, Woman's Way, It. Um, So we started doing some some work with them and we brought out uh, the Smurfit Group's annual report in, I think, 1996 on on CD-ROM. But... Yeah, so it was all, it was like one of the first annual reports in Ireland, I guess. It was distributed electronically. But mm-hmm. the funny thing was we had to actually bundle a browser onto the CD-ROM because we knew most people didn't have web browsers at the time. Mm-hmm. So we were talking to Netscape about licensing Netscape and Microsoft. And right. uh, Microsoft were charging for, you had to pay about, I don't know, three pounds per download of oh. Explorer at the time. Jeez, yeah. So I think we got a... I think we got uh, the Netscape browser for free, put it onto the browser, onto the CD-ROM, added all the HTML files, and the annual report was distributed as a CD-ROM, but That's it was a kind of strange yeah. way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it sounds like at this stage, and I know when we get into further career and you know become an entrepreneur, did you have that design in your mind at this stage that you wanted to go in and set up your own business? Or when you were saying, within Smurfdale, you were with a couple of guys set up that own division. Did you see this as kind of a safe environment or a lab almost to potentially learn in and do the setting up startup yourself further down? Uh, I guess, like we come, my, my dad's an entrepreneur, a lot of my uncles are, my grandfather had his own business. Okay, so, so it's, in the it's kind of, yeah, I guess we kind of grew up in the environment where uh, it's not a strange thing to have your own business. It's kind mm-hmm. of, I don't know if it's quite the norm, but it's certainly not unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not such a, a big jump mm. to set up a business. Interesting. Um, it was yeah. something you always saw yourself doing, was it? Uh, I don't know if I really thought through it to be okay. honest on right. that much. You know, like yeah, in your yeah. early 20s, you're kind of cruising a little bit. Okay. Uh, or certainly I was anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I wasn't kind of waiting for the day that I'd become the Richard Branson, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was just in my 20s and kind of enjoying myself. Mm. And, you know, you're carried along by life to an extent. It seemed like a natural progression. So then... Just yeah, happened. well, a few things, I guess, happened. One was, you know, from working in that company, from working in Intelligence Magazine, and that mm-hmm. was a startup. I, I you know, okay. I worked with the founder of it directly. Right. You know, it was a really small company. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you could see what was involved in running a business. 
uh, in Smurfit, we were involved in setting up that new division. It was a division for a bigger company. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to see what was involved in that. I wasn't leading it by any means, um, but I got to see what was happening in there. Um, and then we were working with another company when I was in Smurfit called um, Trinity Technology, um, who became Ebion eventually. But there was a, an entrepreneur who used to come into us called Norman Crowley, and he ran his own business. Uh, and he used to do some work, uh, some some software development work for uh, Smurfit. So, you know, I got to know him and mm. learned more about what he was doing. And it was another company um, run by a guy, Steve McCormick and Dara Ward, who became friends of mine. Um, so they, they had set up their own businesses and they were contracting into us. And okay. this was when the internet was very, very early. And it mm. was like, there was like Nuo was probably the other big internet company in Labyrinth. Mm. Um but they were all run by young people, you know, and there was nobody kind of over 27 kind of yeah. in the industry. It was all people in the young twenty, in their early 20s because right. they were the people who kind of, who embraced the web yeah, and kind of it, made the most of it, they got it. Uh, so I guess socializing with those people and working with those people mm. um, made it easier and easier to set up a business. Right. Like I left Smurfit, actually went to Australia after that for a year and on a gap year of traveling yeah worked as a a scuba dive guide for a year in a small town called Byron Bay Uh, yeah I've been there so yeah Yeah. it's a great spot it's a wonderful place Um, do you feel that was something you had always planned to do to take that year out and and do a bit of life searching no No, again just naturally it It seems like there was a natural kind of progression just going on yeah well like that's I mean in your early what's for me in my early 20s there was no master plan there was a few things I wanted to do um, and and I entertained those notions yeah Um, but there was no kind of you know master plan saying like like most people in their early 20s or most people throughout their life I wasn't sure what I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, so at the time it seemed like a good idea to go scuba diving in Australia so <laughs> it sounds like a great idea <laughs> anytime I would say not just in your <laughs> mid-20s but uh, so you went there for a year what sticks out in your mind when you think back about that time apart from you know the scuba diving but was there any life lessons or life learnings that you said when you came back you felt more prepared for the next challenge yeah, yeah I suppose there's a few um I remember one stage, like, you know, you don't earn a lot of money when you're uh, driving a bus for a hostel and working as a scuba dive guide. Did you have dreadlocks? Um, I kind of no, visited you with no long dreadlocks, dreadlocks no, here. No, or I'm, I'm or... lucky to have any hair. I take the dreadlocks now, like, but no, I didn't. Yeah. Um, I remember finding a pair of shoes in, in, in one of the rooms in the hostel mm. and being delighted that they, they were the right size for me. They were left behind, were they? They were left behind because there was a hole in the top of them in the okay. sole. But right. it was a pair of shoes and, you know, there was no way I was going to get $60 for a pair of shoes and the yeah, wages yeah. I was on. Cool. And then we were fed by the Harry Krishnas. There was a Harry Krishna restaurant where my girlfriend worked. Mm. Uh, and I used to tell other backpackers it was a great place to eat. Uh, and in return, they basically gave me free food for a year. Wow. Um, so it was great, yeah. <laughs> so it was great. So you stayed in Byron Bay for the whole year? Was that uh, in Sydney, actually, for three months. Okay. And then I went to Byron Bay. I was going to go scuba diving the Great Barrier Reef. Mm. And I went to... Byron Bay for a weekend and right. I left nine months later good <laughs> never good. got never got to the Great Barrier Reef right. how far up the coast is Byron Bay about halfway up the halfway east up. coast okay. so coming back then I guess back to Cork after that back to Dublin oh to Dublin yeah okay. so like Dublin had been you know I'd left Cork for kind of seven years at that stage right. um, so came back to Dublin and this guy Norman Crowley who I mentioned earlier who was an internet entrepreneur his business had grown 
<clears throat> and had become uh, a company called Ebian, and they had a professional, they'd hired in a professional CEO. Okay. Um, this was in 1997, I suppose. Um, so the internet was becoming more commercialized, like big corporates were starting to spend money on the internet. People were talking about e-commerce, electronic publishing had become a bit more uh, mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know you could see that there was going to be there was going to be money to be made in this whole sector as mm-hmm. well. There was going to be big growth there. I asked Norman if he had any work for me, and right. he said, "Meet our CEO, Bill Donahue." So I went into Bill, and Bill offered me a job as a project manager. Hmm. So I started to work as a project manager. And had your project this, management, you would have had picked those yeah. skills up just through the other roles. Uh, yeah, and I guess so few people had done any internet work at that time. If you had any internet skills, hmm. um, they'd be valuable. Right. So I'd done multimedia production and front end development, um, and I knew you know I knew my way around. Like I knew. I knew what DNS settings were if I was building out a website. So, you know, I knew yeah. enough to actually project manage uh, a website. Okay. So that was my job. I got the job as project manager, worked on that for about two years, um, and then decided that I wanted to set up my own business. Right. Actually, Ebion was sold in 1998, and I worked with the management team. Like Bill Donahue, the CEO, was leading the sale, and then the rest of the management team were involved. I got involved in, in parts of the acquisition by Aircom mm-hmm. to try and map out what we do on the electronic publishing side. Mm-hmm. So through that process, I saw how a company was sold. The company was sold for twenty million. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, I was in some of the rich meetings, some of the the M and A meetings there, yeah. and some of the planning meetings, and that was yeah, it was a really rich learning. Yeah. Um, and after the company was sold, I decided that I wanted to to do my own thing. Okay. So I left and. I set up a company, I approached a couple of people I knew. One lady, Dermot Cunningham from Oracle, who was a really good salesperson, a great programmer and database guy, Alton Leahy from IBM, um, and a guy who worked with Nish Shigirin. Um, so we then met a couple of other people, Keith Davey, another really good programmer at Netscape, Martin Casey, who was like an absolute brilliant designer. Um, the six of us set up Zartist.com, mm-hmm. and we did it to build out... Web, web applications and websites. So there was a couple of companies building the front end of websites in the graphic design and the, you know, mm. the HTML. Then there were some companies doing the back end. So there were very few companies doing the front end and the back end. I know it sounds strange, but like mm-hmm. at the time, yeah. there just weren't many companies doing that. So we set up the company. So we do consulting with clients and how to migrate to the web. We build, you know, what, you know, what we now call wireframes and do the UI UX mm-hmm. uh, and then do, the back-end development and actually help them with the hosting and the managed service as well. Mm. So that was in... Was set- it for a unique, a unique offering, as you said, at the time? Uh, you- it wasn't unique, but there weren't many companies doing Strange. it. Like there was, you know, the companies doing it at the time were like Nebula, uh, Labyrinth. Um, they were the two main kind of competitors, I guess. Okay. Aniva were doing more multimedia stuff. So there's a couple of companies doing it. We certainly weren't unique, mm-hmm. um, but we were one of a small cohort that okay. were doing this. We could do it well. <clears throat> yeah, we could do it well. We knew, we knew it was involved. So that was in September uh, 1999. We grew the company to 20 people by June 2000. Mm-hmm. And then an American company, Breakaway Solutions, came to Ireland. They said, look, we need to set up a European base. We'd right. like to buy your company. Okay. Um, and we went into a negotiation with them. We sold the company for $18 million dollars. Uh, nine months after we had set it up, we'd no we'd no venture capital, right. uh, so we'd no external funding. We had borrowed money between the six of us and put that in as as the kind of the initial capital right. to start the company. 
And so you thought at this stage, this whole setting up company and selling companies was easy. It seemed that way. Yeah, certainly that way. Yeah, it seemed that way for for a short moment. Yeah. But then the whole internet sector collapsed. The trap door fell open. We kind of fell through it. Right. Uh, so the company that bought us, when they bought us, they were listed on Nasdaq. They had a market cap of two billion dollars. Uh, we couldn't sell our shares for mm. twelve months. Most of the consideration that we got was in shares. Right. There was some cash. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But most, the majority of it was in shares. Uh, so when when the whole internet thing collapsed, um, the company basically went broke. The parent yeah. company went broke. So it went from being a two billion dollar market cap company to zero in mm. twelve months. Wow. Uh, so yeah, that's <laughs> so that, it, it wasn't so easy after all, you know. Yeah. So so what age were you at that stage? About twenty seven or eight? Yeah, twenty seven. And yeah. I, I guess the change in emotion or the change in how you felt things were going very quickly there. What was the kind of key life lessons that you took away from that experience into into your next venture, I guess? I think you learned that, you know, the, the line between success and failure is a very thin one. Mm. And it's usually not a permanent one either. Mm. Like people will, you know, will be riding high one day and, and not the next day. Mm. You know, and that's, that's a, you know, I learned that lesson. I got a very harsh, like learning on that. that time, yeah. yeah, you know, you know, Everything was going perfectly. It was 27, multimillionaire, you know, what could go wrong? Suddenly, bang, you know, you're like, I was on TV about after we sold the company in the front page of the Irish Times, it was like young millionaire, you know, you know, does does good. Uh, And then a year later, we're back in the paper saying dot com millionaires lose everything. Mm. Um, So you, you know, you get a harsh lesson that basically success, if you measure success purely in terms of financial terms mm. you know it's probably going to change and, and it changes for a lot of people like a lot of successful people if you classify them as success based on yeah. wealth or success in business they've been successful but they've also lar- often been unsuccessful at different points in their career Absolutely. you know and i think once you have an honest conversation with most people mm. uh, that seem to have been very successful uh, they'll tell you that they've also had times where they weren't successful and maybe that wasn't in the public spotlight but i think most people are conscious of that yeah absolutely that's, that's very eye-opening what what strikes me then i guess is your attitude to risk afterwards or, or decision making or, or you know everything isn't as picturesque as it might look what was your approach going forward after those learnings or how you picked yourself back up and started again or wanted to go again yeah i mean i like i didn't we didn't set up the company to get rich mm. and we didn't I didn't start doing internet sure. stuff to get rich. I mean, that what that was that was a side effect that happened because it was this mania, you know, that just evolved and was fostered by by greed, I guess. You know, yeah. and it was by people in, in the finance sector and people who were investing in companies, mm-hmm. and you know, so what happened there was almost a side effect of what we were trying to do. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that there was a transformative technology change in the world, mm-hmm. and we happened to live at it at a time when we can be part of that. I mean, yeah. for me, like that's, that's really the core. The skill thing sets that was of interest. still valid. And the, yeah, it's not, it's not even about skill sets. It's like being, being part of that transformation. It's kind of like, imagine if we had kind of moved from being hunter gatherers to, um, you know, having, you know, animal husbandry and cultivated crops. And if, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. if that happened in a period of 15 or 20 years, mm. you know, it'd be pretty interesting to be a farmer at the time. Right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. what's happening that what happened over the last 15 years and is happening into the next 15 years mm-hmm. is, is a really profound change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're feeling the implications of that in, in, in a global sense in many, many ways, good and bad. Yeah. Um, 
And that's really exciting. That's yeah. the, that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of detach yourself from any of the ups and downs of the financial challenges. Or yeah, and as much as you can. I yeah. mean, look, you know, like if you're working in a job and you lose your job, you're not detached from that. You know, you could be in a very big bank or you could be in a big tech company, mm. you know, or a pharmaceutical company or government service and you, you know, you lose your job, that can happen. Mm. You're not detached from it. You're pissed off because you're, you're earning less money. Sure. You know, or your pension might have been affected or you might have bought a house and that might have gone to negative equity. Yeah. So we're never detached from that. That's that's part of the process of life, right? Mm. Um, but I think if that's all you think about and if that's the primary thing you're always thinking about, mm. uh, then I think that's a very dangerous that's a very dangerous measure to have of yourself. Sure. So after that experience, moving along in the, the journey... What, yeah. what was next? Or, so know. next was a camper van, two surfboards and two mountain bikes <laughs> and five months off touring around Europe. <laughs> cool. It's a good way to kind of get over that. Yeah, it's a good way to kind of uh, have some R&R. Yeah. Um, so it was a pretty intense like two years going yeah. from like startup to exit to boss, you know, that was pretty intense. I was very lucky to, you know, have the same girlfriend that I was, that I was with um, yeah. from back along and... We took off for four or five months in a camper van and had an amazing, amazing holiday. Um, and then we took a little bit of time off after that and visited friends in different places and uh, then came back home and we got married. And then I got involved in two businesses. One was uh, Phonepool, which was selling prepaid uh, SIM cards to students going J1s to the US. Okay. So a friend of mine worked and used it and he was saying, look, at the time we didn't have tri-band GSM phones. <clears throat> so he was saying, the kids' phones going to on J1 won't work in America. Why don't we sell uh, refurbished phones? It later became SIM cards. But initially we started selling refurbished phones to the students going to the US. Mm. Um, so I started working on that with him as a pro- kind of a project. I wasn't going when working full-time on it. It was a yeah. project-based one. And I put a little bit of money into that to help get it started. Um, Coleman Leiden went on to run that and moved to New York and changed the business into kind of prepaid SIM cards for, you know, people from all over the world moving to America. And mm. uh, he sold it to Jersey Telecom, uh, but six years later. So it was, that was one project I was involved in. Okay, cool. And the other one was uh, a company called Upstart Games. So myself and a very good friend of mine, Barry O'Neill, uh, wanted to do something in the game space. And Barry mm. had gone through a similar roller coaster right as i had in the whole dot com days yeah uh so we wanted to do something in the game space we found that there were pretty much no games companies was i mean havoc were 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 middleware engine in ireland that were kind of emerging at the time but there weren't really companies doing building or publishing games in ireland or maybe one or two but that was it so we thought we'd do something in that area we started looking at opportunities this is in 2002 barry basically spent all of the money we had in the company buying a new Apple Mac and flying to Tokyo right. to meet Konami, who are one of the biggest game publishers in the world. Oh, yeah, Konami. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. yeah, so he he secured the rights to distribute all of their mobile content in Europe and the US. So we basically, there was only two of us, you know, and we we did the deal with them. Oh. And um, we had to build a team. We, you know, we, we've got this, we had to put up like a large sum of money as a mm-hmm. minimum guarantee to get the rights for the content. Mm. Um, but we did it. Uh, we raised 500,000 euros in cash from a small group of investors. Right. Uh, and we started building up a team to modify the Japanese content so it would work on European and US handsets. Mm. 
this is this is four years before the iPhone. I mean, most of us in Europe was it, were was, still on. Was there was there the concept of a smartphone at this point? Like, or? they had color screens in Japan. So Entity Docomo and SoftBank, and, yeah. and they like they had color screens over there, and most people were getting color screens. Mm. But it was it, that was not definitely not the case in in Europe and mm. the US. Most people in Europe and in Europe were on. Nokia thirty three tens or sixty three tens with gateways and Snake and basically yeah. Snake and what was kind <laughs> yeah, of yeah. what was happening at the time. Right, right. Uh, so we we took a bet that people would get color handsets mm. in in two thousand and four two thousand three. So that was a bet we put down anyway. <clears throat> and we told Konami we will sell your content, we will sell the games because you know Europe and the US are going to get color handsets. Mm. Um, smartphones are going to become you know You'll popular eventually. Yeah. Ubiquitous. Um, and we, we took a bet on it. We got the content. We hired a team to modify the content. Um, and we started distributing. Frogger was the big hit. Frogger was like the 80s arcade classic. Yeah. It's an evergreen title. Mm. So that sold a, like a lot of units, uh, especially in the US on Sprint, Verizon, AT&T, you know, and then in Europe to Vodafone and Telefonico too. So <clears throat> we basically were, became a, a publisher um, and we distributed through the tier one uh, opcos globally. And... The business kind of grew. We, we acquired a small company in Tokyo. And we opened an office in small office in um, New York and LA, like you know, two or three person yeah, offices. The presence, uh, yeah, just some presence there. Yeah. And then I moved back down to Cork, and I built up a game development team here. We had about eight or nine people here, and then we we started working with the content owners in the US. Uh, building games for them, so we we signed a deal to build Finding Nemo for Disney. We built oh. a James Bond game for Sony Pictures. Uh, we built the two. We built one of them in Cork. We built um, Finding Nemo in Cork. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so our, we had partners in Japan, and we had um, content partners and, and distribution partners in, in the US and Europe. Hmm. Um, we built up the company to about forty people. Um, then Konami. Uh, took back the rights like we, we'd only bought the rights for a year to their okay. content and we were extending that on a year by year basis right. eventually they went okay the iPhone is out you know the the world has got smartphones we're mm. going to do a solar run and we're going to take back the distribution rights okay. so we had to change the business and start working with other partners but we did that successfully I mean we were you know 90% of our revenue came from Konami and when they took the contract back we had to still pay everybody you know our costs were largely fixed yeah uh, so we had to scramble to kind of reinvent the business we did that um and then we sold the company in 2006 to a chinese media company right and uh barry my co-founder uh moved to uh china to work there for a year um i finished an earn out in cork um and then after that i started looking at what I'd do next. Mm-hmm. So I started uh, started looking at the next the next venture. What I'm learning all the way through is your attitude to taking risks certainly doesn't seem to be deterred from, you know, the, the previous experience of not necessarily working out, which is which is very interesting that you just want to go for it and take the chances. You see the opportunities and and uh, and it seems like you know you make them kind of successful as, as much as yeah, as much as you can. Yeah. You know, we've had some great successes. We've also made some, you know, some some big mistakes. Yeah. And you, I think anybody in business, if they're honest with you, will tell you they've they've had some great ups and some some terrible downs. Question around a, a mentor: Have you had mentors during your career that you would have leaned on and bounced ideas? 
again, it sounds like you're you're making a lot of these decisions with your own. You come to these decisions or take these chances with your own uh, mindset. Coming to that point, is there mentors involved at all? Uh, I've been very lucky. Like I have a great family, very supportive family. So you know, you can talk. Like, you know, I talk to my dad about business stuff, yeah. which is great. My brother Dennis has helped me. You know, through through a bunch of things. You know, my wife is always there. So I've been very lucky with you know a solid family to bounce stuff off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I find. A lot of friends of mine are entrepreneurs, hmm. you know, and you kind of, there's a kind of a, a, mentee, a pure mentoring. Mentor, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like you might, you know, some days I'd phone a friend of mine saying, look, I'm thinking about this, what do you think? And hmm. some days, you know, there's three or four friends of mine that I do that with. Yeah. Uh, I know they, they'd call me back, but I don't have any, I tried coaching last year. Yeah. Uh, I went for a co- like three coaching sessions, uh, which was interesting, but I've never had uh or you know during the years i haven't had a kind of consistent no, mentor, mentor or, or there's yeah. no there hasn't been a board you know what kind of hmm. i think it'd be great i'd love i'd love to have that i did when i was starting off i went to leslie buckley who right. works with dennis brian oh, yeah. uh, i went to him and when i was starting up zartus first in 1999 and he gave me some great advice and hmm. uh like that was that was a you know i met him maybe two or three times um but i i really I'm grateful for the chats I had with, with him and he gave me some brilliant nuggets. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah absolutely. Cool. I'm conscious we've only a few minutes left, so I want to get into a few rapid. See, time flies, John. I knew you wouldn't think. <laughs> what time is it? There's only, uh, there's three minutes to 11. Oh, wow. so, okay. You know, so I want to take a few minutes to go through some of these questions because I think this is where some of the, the takeaways people can maybe get as okay. well. Not that there wasn't lots along the way. Um, a work-life balance, how would you say that works? And I think I probably, I know the answer to this because you just go off traveling around and no, scuba diving for like, two weeks every now and again. But how do you balance that and, and you know, bring in work home and how challenging is that? I give an example from yesterday. Uh, okay. So, Padre Coffey, who's my fellow director and business partner, uh, was over from Madrid for a few days. We had a meeting with Fexco, one of our clients yeah. who are based down in Clorglam. Yeah. So we started, like I started work early, you know, sending emails, like the usual stuff in the mornings, phone calls, mm. collected project, drove to Fexco. We had our meeting with Fexco. We had a lunch with our, our, our client uh, down there and uh, had a bunch of more emails and phone calls uh, and then went surfing for two hours. Cool. So yeah so you, you can fit it in during the day like there's, you you can, there's not well, nine to five anymore well, anyway both so Padraig and I were sitting in the car on the beach before going surfing and Padraig had the laptop out he's typing I'm on a call yeah. you know we're getting stuff done so for me that's work-life balance that's brilliant yeah. <laughs> just you touched on something there um you emails in the morning right or whatever so mm-hmm. I do a lot of listening to podcasts reading I'm actually going through it I'm doing a challenge every month this year my January challenge was dry January so I didn't have a drink at all February I'm trying not to read email until after 10 o'clock in the morning because I find myself the most productive and focused for maybe two mm. hours beforehand to actually get stuff done because once I get into my day job, or as soon as I start reading email, I'm consumed by it. And I listen to a couple of podcasts or talks. Um, Simon Sinek is a guy, I don't know if you heard of him, he made a book start with why, but he talks about the instant gratification you get from responding to an email and it's a hit of dopamine mm. and you're kind of on a cycle yeah. of, and you're just an hour and a half in and mm. it's gone. Mm. So do you have any habits around your productivity or kind of rules that you say, no, I don't get into email first thing? Obviously, it sounds like you just dive in and out but just interesting to see how you how you be productive uh i have a few little things i do like one is that i go to the gym every monday morning like early and that kind of kicks off the week it also means that i won't i'll never go out on a, on a sunday yeah. um so you can, you can go out and i enjoy having a few pints on a friday night or something's on saturday night 
but Sunday is like, you know, it's, it's calm day. Um, and then up early on Monday morning into the gym. And it's a great way to just kickstart the week. So if you set, um, you know, goals for yourself in terms of number of days week per week for training or the type of food you're going to eat or whatever it is, like as humans, we kind of, we, we slip off the path, but by having the gym session every Monday morning, sets up for the week ahead in, in, in a positive way it starts off in a, in a very good way and it also means that i'm feeling great all day monday mm. um so that's one hack that i kind of have to it's make sure that the week ahead is, a, is yeah, a good yeah. one if yeah if i've, if I've kind of learned one good hack in the last like five years that's probably the one i'd monday morning gym session go to the gym before work on monday morning feel great and you're setting yourself up for the right the right behaviors in the rest of the week yeah yeah i, I try to fake it till i make it sometimes around monday saying it's my favorite day of the week and tell people openly you know it sometimes works but not always that'd be bank holiday mondays <laughs> yeah sometimes they're, they're, they're kind of tough days as well what's the hardest decision you think you've ever had to make i think if you're you know running a business and it's not working out it's when to quit you know that's a really really hard decision to make mm. and sometimes it's been like the decision has been don't quit, you know, but that's the hard decision is like when to quit. What advice would you give to your 20 year old self? Uh, enjoy, enjoy <laughs> the free time that you have. So like you and did enjoy most it, of it Yeah. But like if you had your early twenties back knowing everything, you know, now you'd probably have like, you know, set up and had two businesses, done a PhD, mm-hmm. you know, rolled across the Atlantic, <laughs> you know, you're like, you, you have so much free time in your twenties and you think, oh, I have no time. So I think to, to cherish the time that you have, you know, and enjoy it yeah. and make the most of it is. Cool. If you could change one law, what would it be? Oh, like, like section 50 of the Companies Act. A <laughs> company can't buy back its shares right. unless it has distributed dividends. That one got me once. Um, if I could change one law, look, I, I'm a big believer in personal privacy and that people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do as long as it doesn't harm other people. So I think, I think less intrusion government has on people's personal lives the better good one that one seems to stick out so yeah um are you an inbox zero or an inbox ten thousand plus type person zero obsessive about it yeah i'll be that as well um, and you just <laughs> never seem to get there um, but i obsess about it about, it's, it's the constant quest yeah it's the hamster wheel what's your favorite movie that might stick out uh, i have a lot of favorite movies it's i like the kind one. of yeah, I mean, Blade Runner has to be one of the all-time classics, you know, Gladiator. I know it's a kind of a hmm. saccharine-type movie, but, you know, yeah, Blade Runner probably, if I had to name one. Yeah. If you were to give a gift of a book to, to your friend or somebody, what, what book could, would you give? Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. You've heard of that. Uh, Shoe Dog is the biography of the... It's a biography, basically, of Nike. It's about the founder of Nike, uh, Phil Knight, and it's about him setting up Nike. And it's not, oh, I'm a wonderful man, and here's how I achieve greatness with a wonderful company. It's like it's in the trenches, down and dirty, how he was like almost going broke constantly for a long, long time, uh, and all the difficulties he went through to actually get that business up and running and off the ground. Mm. You know, if you're not interested in business even, it's an amazing biography. It's beautifully written. Mm. Um and I recently gave it to somebody as a gift. So that's the one I'd you know, your question. That's give. a good one. A um, couple of quick ones. Do you, uh, What's your sleep like? Do you, do you have to have six, eight, five, four? What's your hours? like? Uh, very consistent pattern. It takes about like maybe 60 seconds to fall into a deep wow. sleep. And I'm gone for about seven hours. That's it. That's good. <laughs> no matter what is happening. Yeah. Crying well, babies, cash for worries. And would it be, would, would you sleep in a plane now? Or would you be able to sleep that anywhere? Really, just, no. no. Okay. Sleep best in my own bed. Okay, okay. Do you meditate or do you have any kind of meditative type practices? Yeah. 
yeah, I do occasionally meditate and uh, and I surf. So that's like meditation. You're sitting on the board, look at the sun going down over Brandon Bay. Like that's meditation. Yeah, there's so many different types. Last question, I guess, and you've given lots of advice uh, along the way through. Is there a piece of advice that you've been given that sticks with you that you would uh, think good to share? I got a very good piece of advice recently um, and it was uh, to be grateful. You know, and I, I think we all know that and we kind of learn that from like, whether it's like, you know, prayer before a meal, thank God for the food. I'm not a religious person, but mm-hmm. you know, that that's a form of gratefulness. Yeah. Uh, I think that to be grateful is really important, but it's also important because anyone who's grateful, uh, you can't be unhappy if you're grateful. So I think to learn how to be grateful is actually, you know, makes you a happier person. So it's, it's also a very good thing for you yourself. How would you put that into practice? Is it... I'd actually journal a little bit. So some nights I'd write a few things I was grateful for for the day or whatever. Is there any technique that you would use to do that? Or just I think just to reflect on it. Yeah. yeah, just remind yourself. I suppose journaling is better. I don't have the discipline to do that. That's probably a better way to do it. But, you know, if you don't have the discipline to journal, I think to just take a little bit of time to reflect on the reasons you're grateful and, and maybe to acknowledge it to other people. Yeah. Cool. Nice way to end it. There you are. John, thank, thank you, you for your so time. <laughs> You're brilliant. We've got to uh, 49, 50 minutes, so we did Great. pretty good. Perfect. Yeah. Thanks, right. John. Nice one. Cheers. Hey folks, so if you're at this point, it means you got to the end of one of my episodes. Thank you for listening. It's uh, it's great that you took the time to do so, and I hope you got something out of it. So I'm just going to wrap it up with a shout out for feedback. As you know, the show is pretty new, and it's just growing, evolving, and your feedback is really important to me as I try and improve the show, make it 1% better. So please Get in touch with feedback, with questions that you may like me to put to guests in the future. Do you have a guest in mind that would be uh, really interesting to have on the show? Please let me know. Are there things that I could improve on? Are there things that are working? And are there things that are not working? Even more so important. I'd love to hear about it. I'm very open to feedback. So do please take a couple of minutes to get in touch. How can you do this? You can email me rob at robofthegreen.ie the comments section on the website go there that's www.robofthegreen.ie and there's a feedback page i'm on twitter the handle is at robofthegreen i'm on instagram robofthegreen facebook there's a page called robofthegreen and if you're in Cork and see me out and about please feel free to give me feedback verbally ideally positive or constructive if it's of a violent or negative nature, either mental or physical, please refrain from from that. I don't think that would uh, would be good. But um, all the other stuff, I'm I'm very open to. And the show is on iTunes and Stitcher, so it'd be great if you subscribe there, so you'll constantly get updated episodes when I roll them out. So look, that's it. Thanks again for listening. I hope you have a great day and implement some of the learnings in your everyday lives. Thanks so much. Bye.